Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Happy Pride Month. Happy Reclaim Pride. Happy Queer Liberation March Day. Please rate and review the Katie Halper Show on iTunes. Please support the show on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. You can help make the show possible for just $1 a month. And for $5 a month, you can get bonus content and extended interviews. On today's episode, I play an interview I did with the excellent Jules Gill Peterson, an historian and associate professor of English and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. She's the author of the book Histories of the Transgender Child and the general co-editor of Transgender Studies, which comes out of Duke University Press. Her writing can be found in places like the New York Times, The Guardian, and more. You can check out her Substack, Sad Brown Girl, at sadbrowngirl.substack.com. Find out more about Jules at jgillpeterson.com. Follow her on Twitter at gp underscore jls. This interview was recorded in April, but is just as relevant now as it was then. Really excited to be speaking to Jules today about her amazing book, which I have right here. And everyone should get it. Histories of the Transgender Child. And wanted to know like why you wrote this book in the first place and how you came upon the really interesting archival material. Yeah, that's a great question. And thanks for thanks for having me on to talk about course, this. Yeah. You know, I started this research, gosh, it was during my PhD, so probably about seven or eight years ago now. And you know, time moves so quickly in, in trans time, I suppose, you know, that far back, we were starting to see some of the first kind of like media interest in trans youth, but it was pretty small. It was like limited to a few sort of journalistic exposés or maybe a documentary or two. But at the time I was, I was already sort of knee deep in research on the history of trans medicine in general. So how have trans people been medicalized over the past hundred years? And, you know, I had been sort of watching the way that trans issues, especially around that sort of 2014 Laverne Cox Time magazine cover, the trans tipping point, there's so much language around trans people like this is the new issue. Okay, we we're almost done with gay marriage and now there's trans people. Right. And, you know, lots of trans folks at the time were like only 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 cis journalists could come up with this idea. But one of the things I, I was sort of most particularly worried about at the time was the way that trans kids in particular were really being received as like this totally brand new generation. A lot of that early journalistic coverage, like this 2020 special in 2006, one of the first ones with Jazz Jennings when she was really young, you know, they talk about things like puberty blockers and, you know, hormones sort of for the first time in media, but kind of just assume that this must be the first time this has ever come up historically. This is the first generation of kids to be trans and this sort of whole language of like, wow, if if they're new, we kind of don't really know what it means to transition. We don't know what the outcomes will be. We kind of have to proceed cautiously. And as a historian, you know, it, that, that kind of language always wrinkles my nose because almost everything that's supposedly new turns out to be like pretty old. But, you know, I, I was also at the time looking in these medical medical histories and kind of seeing that there were mentions here and there of trans kids, mostly of teenagers who were making their way to some of the early clinics in the U.S. that reluctantly allowed some trans people to transition. And I myself was really surprised, but I hadn't expected to see children 
I mean, I knew there were trans children, but I didn't think they would be transitioning in the past. That seemed very hard to do because it was very hard for adults. So my mind was a little bit blown. And I sort of saw these hints in relation to this sort of broader um, framing of trans kids in the media as new. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's, there's a story here, right? Right. Well, well, what, what, what if it turns out they're not new, right? And if it turns out they're not new, then where can we find evidence? So I turned to the medical archive because that's where I was starting to see whispers. And so basically my, my research kind of took off by me going to a lot of major medical records, kind of repositories, uh, institutions that have historically provided certain forms of healthcare to trans people. So Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, University of California in Los Angeles. I looked at records from private clinics as well in New York City. I mean, actually all over the country. And as I started to look through them, I realized there were kids just hiding in plain sight. Really remarkable children who not only figured out how to call themselves trans, we're talking like as far back as the 1940s or 30s, but also understood this new medical field, understood the science, sought out doctors, sometimes in spite of their parents, sometimes with their parents' help. And some of them managed to do it. They managed to transition as teenagers, right? Often, you know, change their name, change their clothes, go to school, sometimes take hormones. And then sometimes later, once they were adults, get surgery. And it was just this remarkable kind of treasure trove of material that completely changes how we would sort of greet trans children today. Because there's nothing new about people who have been doing this for, for almost a century, right? So it was really actually, though, and, and this is something I think that's important to say, it was new to me. When I was, as a professional historian, going through this material, there were no existing scholarly accounts of trans childhood prior to like the 2000s or the 1990s. And so I myself, you know, took the time to do really careful kind of peer-reviewed research to, to ensure that, you know, the kinds of arguments and claims that I wanted to make in establishing the, the existence of trans kids were sort of really, you know, solidly made and based in extensive kind of historical empirical research. But, you know, I can understand why this is all new to folks in general, because we're just sort of seeing, you know, it's like right now you can turn on Netflix and see a trans kid on, you know, any kind of streaming show, you, you know, if you just throw a, a dart at the proverbial board, it'll probably land on some trans character. That's great. But it's not like you get a history lesson when you do that. Right. Part of what I'm trying to do is sort of bring these, these long overlooked histories. They weren't exactly hidden, but no one was looking for them. No one wanted to establish if there are trans kids in the past. So it's really kind of exciting um, and really helpful, I think, in this present moment where we're seeing basically historical amnesia being, being weaponized as politics. Right. Or historical amnesia or, or just ignorance, right? Because you were saying, like, you didn't even know it existed. Yeah, although I guess there's sort of a difference between, like, ignorance as in I didn't have any evidence to the contrary and sort of, like, this sort of practice kind of bad faith ignorance that I see a lot of transphobes using. So that's kind yeah, of Yeah, of course, right, right. But that's an interesting pivot place for history to kind of play a role in sort of not just kind of correcting the record, but also challenging the way people come to talk about trans kids today without a foundation in any sort of knowledge base. Yeah. Right. So what did this change for you? You said that you didn't know this and and it changes how you see things and how we see things. So what were the changes that you like thought about or felt even? Yeah. I mean, it changed my life personally. I started transitioning around the time that I finished my book and and part of that was actually kind of this interesting riddle. You know, I'd, I'd written this book about kids who were so brilliant, so self-possessed, so articulate and so bold that they figured out how to know they were trans decades and decades ago and transition. I mean, they had trans childhoods 
completely unlike mine. You know, I can look back in time and say, oh, well, it's very obvious I had a trans childhood, but that's not language that I had for myself. And it's not something that I thought about or was able to articulate, even though I was born in many cases, many decades later than the kids I write about. So for me personally, it was just sort of this incredible confrontation with history. And I think one of the most interesting things about history is actually that we don't look backwards and see ourselves reflected. We look backwards and see something different, you know, people's lives who are not like our lives, but from whom we can learn so much about shared struggle, because in a lot of ways, you know, the issues trans kids face haven't really changed in the last 50 or 60 years. In some ways, in some ways, they've gotten worse. So for me personally, it was a huge deal. For me as a scholar, it was also a huge deal. And this is largely what uh, the rest of my book ends up taking up. It's like trying to understand, okay, hold on. Why are there kids in all of these clinics, right? Because there's no separate pediatric medical model, right? Today, we have this sort of pediatric trans medical model right? That's sort of developmentally focused, but that's only been around for kind of barely 10 years. And so prior to them, there's just one size fits all trans medical model, which, you know, most trans people will use the phrase gatekeeping to talk about. It was a form of a medical model that actually tried to limit as much as possible anyone ever transitioned, including kids. And so I was like, how the heck did they get in there? You know, it's like the, the, the barrier to entry couldn't have been higher, but it turns out that in the 20th century, both scientific research and medical research were super interested in children and infants actually. And they wanted to understand in studying trans kids and also intersex kids, how sex and gender form for everyone. So this is kind of the interesting part of the history that I think might actually be almost in some ways the most important and because it affects everyone, right? We have this idea, this accepted, sort of accepted terminology today, right? That you have, you know, your your sex, which maybe refers to your body, you know, parts of your anatomy. People believe it's divisible into male and female or not, right? And then we have something called gender, which is like your identity that's sort of maybe in your brain or your psyche or your soul, depending how you want to look at it. And then we have sexuality, which is like you know, who we're who we desire, who we want to be with, right? And and that idea that those are separate things took the entire 20th century for science and medicine to produce. And they produced it basically out of experiments on kids. Mm-hmm. Why? Because children aren't finished growing, right? And so in my book, I talk about this history of a concept called plasticity, right? It's a really good metaphor because the metaphor is plastic, something right. that's malleable, something that changes can change form. And so Western medicine and science basically came to the conclusion by the beginning of the 20th century that, hey, In humans, the younger you are, the more plastic you are, right? And especially in utero, especially in infancy, and especially before puberty. And then as we see the 20th century go on, scientists and and, and doctors are trying to figure out, okay, so where does like sexual differentiation come from? Sexual maturity, what makes people male and female? Where does their sense of being a man or a woman come from? And where does their sense of desire come from? What makes people heterosexual or homosexual, right? And to use the language that they used back then. And, you know, much to their chagrin, the answer was, we have no idea. They never could never figure it out. And the problem was by the 1950s, kind of seemed like there was no explanation, right? And people didn't really seem to be naturally male or female or exclusively male or female. People did not seem to be naturally binary sex. People were not naturally matching their identity with their body and people were not naturally heterosexual. And it was a huge crisis for science and medicine because they weren't trying to be liberators of queer and trans people, right? They wanted to develop normalizing technologies to force that human plasticity 
to take on social forms, right? Being a man or a woman is a social cultural matter, right? Not a biological matter. So they want to force the body to agree with social norms or to be heterosexual, right? Which is not a natural born state. And so basically what's really interesting to me is that we can look at this history of trans kids just to say, hey, there were trans kids. And that's super important, especially right now when we're seeing all these attacks. But we can also look at this history and say, wait a minute, our entire idea, the idea that you have personal identity, right, as as a gender identity, as a woman or a man or non-binary or whatever, actually comes out of this really disturbing medical history. And it has huge implications, I think, for how we want to manage sex and gender going forward, right? We can see how conservative GOP legislators want to manage sex and gender, right? But but if we want to think more broadly as feminists, right, as leftists, you know, about how sex and gender and sexuality are used as tools of oppression, then this history is actually really important because children, it turns out, are the actual foundation on which we founded the whole idea that you have gender identity. So it's a really important history that was a little bit buried in the clinics because these clinicians basically didn't want to show their work, right? right? They wanted to show you, don't worry, I figured out how, you know, to force someone to be a male or a female, but that's actually not what they had figured out at all. Right. And what are the some of the most striking examples or inspiring mm. or on the other end, like upsetting examples? And, yeah, and would, would you like brace yourself? Like I had this image of being yeah. in the archives and looking at something and being like, oh, you know, it's brutal. No, it's true. You know, I, I have to say I took a break after yeah. I published this book just just because I was so burnt out personally, you know, reading people's private medical yeah. records, which you have to go through a lot of privacy review boards and all sorts of, you know, institutional review before you can get access. So it's a very rigorous process to make sure that you respect people's privacy, don't leak any information or basically don't publish anything that could be used to trace back who it's about in order to protect not just the privacy of medical records, but also protect, you know, and honor the horrible experiences that people have that I think are important to know about, but not just to recirculate as a kind of, you know, trauma porn or something. Right. Yeah. But for me, it was brutal. I mean, I, uh, you know, I can tell you one example. I spent many, many weeks in the basement of an old psychiatric hospital in Baltimore reading dusty old medical records. Well, I say dusty, but they were on microfiche but the microfiche was dusty. Right. And, you know, I would, I would be, you know, underground for eight hours a day alone in a room reading these horrific, violent accounts of non-consensual corrective right. surgeries that were performed on infants and children without their consent or even telling them, you know, at the end of the day, I'd come up, you know, for air. Right. And I would just be completely wiped, like beyond emotionally exhausted, first physically exhausted because reading for nine hours a day is tiring, but just like, Oh, it would take me days to recover. But there are but there are both, you know, chilling stories and really remarkable stories. And yeah, well, I'll tell one one of each style. We'll start with the bad news, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of kids did get access to gender affirming health care or just let's call it just gender health care. I wouldn't say right. anyone was trying to affirm them. But, you know, we were able to transition. And often it was because they were remarkably resilient and incredibly intelligent. So there's this young trans girl I write about in the book. I call her Vicky because I have to use pseudonyms for everyone. And Vicky grew up in really pretty small town or rural Ohio. And in the 1960s, uh, mid to late 1960s, she's about 13, 14 years old. She knows she's the girl. She lives with, with her father, who's a single parent. 
And so somehow, one, Vicky has another friend in Ohio who's a trans girl her age. So they become pen pals. They don't live in the same city. They've never even met. They, I don't know how they found each other, but they've been writing letters to each other. And then at some point, they find out, probably from reading a newspaper, that there's this famous doctor in New York City, Harry Benjamin. He's an endocrinologist, and he worked with Christine Jorgensen, the most famous woman in the world, who was, who was a trans woman. So there were lots of articles about trans people, kind of sensational articles in the press, but they'd often invoke the medical expert, Benjamin. So these girls get a hold of his address and start writing him in New York City. And Vicky writes Harry Benjamin for two years. I mean, it's incredible treasure trove. She's writing in the first person. She's 14 years old when the letters start. And she basically says, hi, I was reading this medical literature about this term transsexual, and I'm a transsexual. I was born a boy, but I want to be a girl more than anything in the world. My father doesn't really understand. So at the beginning, she's like, hey, could you write my father a letter and explain to him as an expert what it means to be trans? Could you write letters, you know, to school? Because at school, she's getting bullied and beat up all the time. She talks really openly about her depression and her mental health struggles and even her suicide attempts from the extreme vicious bullying she received. And she says, you know, hey, Benjamin, can you send me hormones in the mail? And of course, Harry Benjamin's like, uh, no, <laughs> I can't treat you over the mail. I also can't treat a child without the permission of parents. So, you know, Benjamin's basically like, no, 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 no. And she never gives up. She keeps writing him for years. So, you know, by writing him, she unwittingly leaves this record behind of her life, right? So at age 16, she leaves her small town, moves to Columbus where her sister lives so she can live as a girl and find a doctor to prescribe her estrogen and, you know, basically find out about surgery. And eventually by the time she's 17, she succeeded. She found a doctor who's prescribed her estrogen and she started to transition. And she tells Benjamin, hey, I'm living as a girl. I go out in public as a girl all the time. I use the women's restroom. Men open the door for me. You have to remember this is 1969, right? Um, right. You know, men who open cab doors for me. I mean, she's passing and she's, she's finally feeling really happy and determined that her future is going to be great. She's going to go to cosmetology school, become a hairdresser, right? So Vicky's a really good example of this kid that didn't give up. Literally every adult in her life says no, right? right? Until her older sister, hey, we like to shout out to good siblings, you know, gives, gives her some support and she's able to transition. So that's like a really happy story. Right. On the complete other end, right? Can I read one quote? Yeah. yeah. So in one of her letters, she writes, I don't want to wait until I'm growing old. I want to be a girl on the way to my old age. I want to be a girl now so that I can grow up the rest of the way as a normal girl. Just the sheer wisdom yeah. of that sentence, right? Yeah. She sees the entire developmental premise that she's not old enough to transition and she just blows it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I love these kids' letters. They're incredibly inspiring and they're one of the only places in the archive where we'll see trans kids speaking for themselves usually doctors are talking yeah and it's also i don't want to say logical it's such a problematic word but i do feel mm. like it kind of cuts past a lot of bullshit when what? people are like oh well, you're too young it's like okay no this person wants this they get right? that they want to be doing this now they want to be the thing that they are now and the cruelty of not having that it's true. And, you know, when we see all these adults today trying to deny kids well, the same exact argument, right? Well, you're too young. You're just being brainwashed by your friends or you're just on the Internet too much. OK, well, 
let's turn the clock back 50 years. And first of all, adults are peddling the same argument, but trans kids without the internet, without any visual or visibility or representation in the media are still saying, are still blowing up that argument. So it's like, yeah, it doesn't work very well 50 years after Vicky kind of already deconstructed. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, without internet, without positive role models. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I think probably a lot of people would expect, oh, well, you know, probably trans people waited until they were adults to transition because it was so hard. And and that was true for lots of people, but not everyone, right? But I will say, you know, one of the things I look at in the book is the way that like for Vicky, you know, being a young white girl made all the difference. She, you know, she had the kind of literacy and she was recognized as valuable and as deserving care, even if the doctors thought their goal was to make her normal, that was still actually a privilege. And so the other kind of group of trans kids I talk a lot about in the book who offer kind of a contrast, just to contrast with this case, would be children who weren't even identified as trans by clinicians, but their transness was straight up refused and misread on purpose, either as some other kind of mental illness like schizophrenia often, or read as basically delinquency or defiance or aggression. Right. And a lot of systems of racial surveillance that um, already are, are coming after children of color really intensify the, you know, on trans children of color in particular. So black trans girls are a group in the book that have just the most opposite experience to Vicky. So one of the kids that I talk about is this young trans girl who lived in New Jersey in the 1960s. And uh, she lived in South Jersey in a predominantly black city that was just heavily being targeted by the state of New Jersey. And the black family was really under attack in the civil rights moment. And there was just an incredible amount of policing that took so many different forms. So this this, um, girl, by the age 13, she'd already told her mom, hey, I'm a girl. And as far as I can tell, the mother didn't necessarily have a problem with that, but the mother, you know, also was facing some physical disabilities, had trouble working. And so the state of New Jersey just swept in and takes this child away from from her mother and puts her in the foster care system. But then in the foster care system, as soon as she starts saying, hey, by the way, I'm a girl, they lock her up in a juvenile psychiatric institution around age 15. And she spends the next 15 years locked up in this state institution. Unfortunately, state institutions were locking up tons of kids in the 19th and 20th centuries, all, all the way up until the 80s. And most of them, you know, were prob- a lot of them were, were Black um, and were being targeted. Basically, it was an alternative, but equivalent to prison, right? right? So part of mass, the history of mass incarceration. And girls like this, then they would very calmly and rationally state, hey, I'm a girl. The psychiatrist would say, you're schizophrenic and delusional. And they would diagnose her because homosexuality was still a diagnosable mental illness, diagnose her as homosexual and basically say, no, you're gay. You're not not a woman. And they use that pretense to sign off again and again every year for 15 years. So her whole childhood, her whole trans childhood is spent in captivity. And the only reason she ever got out now, she's an adult, right? She's 30 years old in 1980. And a trans woman uh, who had become a psychiatrist took over a medical practice in New York City. She's just going through old patient files, reviewing all of the files and sees the file of this person who I guess at some point had kind of been assessed or something, but nothing had happened. And she's like, oh my God, this is horrifying. This person has been held for half their life against their will and misdiagnosed, right? She had no mental illness at all. And so she writes, you know, a letter to the institution is finally able to get her released into the community so she can transition 15 years later, 
right? And so that actually, unfortunately, is such a typical story of trans childhood that I would say there were probably more trans kids in the past, like that young black trans girl than there were Vickies, unfortunately. But it's very hard to find their stories because unless they kind of slipped into the archive, like this one slipped in because this trans woman psychiatrist had taken up the case. Otherwise, the only way to find them would be to go through every single state institution and look through the medical records and find trans kids who are never being labeled as trans, right? So it's really hard historical work. It's something that I'm, I'm working on right now to try and get a better sense. But, but if we think of Vicky and this unnamed, I don't have a name for her, Black trans girl, like those are really the two poles of the history of trans kids in terms of institutions in medicine, right? Lots of trans kids probably just never interacted with a doctor right. or a psychiatrist or a police officer. And they just were quietly trans or lived in their community and no one said anything. But for those who did, really, these are kind of two exemplary stories and, and they're really chilling. You know, I mean, Vicky had to fight hard, right? And, and luckily her story is a happy ending, but let's not minimize how hard that must have been. Right. She wrote the leading endocrinologist <laughs> in the field. Like that's wild as a 14 year old, but this unnamed black trans girl was really subject to horrible deprivation and such a violation of her personhood. I mean, I can't imagine how much work it would take to recover from that kind of state abuse. Right. And also how tempting it would be to then just say you're not that. Like, why wouldn't you just lie? We can probably assume that those kinds of institutions would find any flimsy reason to keep you if they wanted to, right? So that may have been part of it. But on the other hand, we can just read that as tenacity, right? right? Like not giving in, right? Not Not backing down when you know you're right. And that is one of the most powerful lessons that I think trans kids have for us, right? No matter what your life experience is, if you're trans, especially as a child, your magic power is that you can stand up in front of your parents, your guardians, every adult in your life and say, hey, you were wrong about something important. I'm going to set the record straight, right? It's an immense assertion. It's really powerful, right? And it's one thing I think we should celebrate about trans kids more, but it also just shows how life or death that is for a lot of kids that they will not back down no matter how many barriers are put in their way. And I think that's an important lesson to remember today too, right? We're obviously really worried and really concerned about this anti-trans avalanche of legislation, but let's also not pretend that trans kids are completely helpless. Like they, they deserve respect because they know who they are. They are not completely helpless people who need doctors to defend them or their parents to defend them. They shouldn't have to like show up and testify in their own defense. It's not what I'm saying, but like they're incredibly powerful, resilient, smart young people. And they have been just by, by necessity, you know, in the entire time that I've been looking at. So I think there's, there's a lot there for us to kind of like, I guess just respect and celebrate and and give more time and, um, and more attention to One of the most pernicious things that you see coming from the right, one of them is like a sense of pity and just looking out for the kids. And they'll point to suicide rates as proof that there's something wrong with these kids. They need to be protected. When, of course, it's like, well, what do you think could make that an issue? Like, why do you think people would be in the position where they're harming themselves. It it seems like there's almost like a model minority requirement. Like all trans people have to be incredibly well adjusted because if they're not, it's proof of some kind of pathology. And also, obviously, there are going to be people who have mental health issues because they're people. 
So there are two things. One is it makes sense that there would be higher suicide rates among a group of people who are not allowed to, in many places, express themselves or be themselves. And then the other thing is just like cis people have mental health issues, there are going to be trans people who do. And everything seems like it's a referendum on the validity of that identity. Yeah, I love that word referendum. It's one that I use a couple of times, I think, in my book, too, because it's true. This is part of the problem with how children can be weaponized. Because again, like I said before, you know, we bring to children this kind of developmental expectation that they're still growing, right? They're still in formation. And so we think with children, we can find the origin of anything, right? That's why doctors have studied children's gender development, because they're like, oh, that must be where gender comes from. Turns out it's a bust kind of endeavor. But obviously, a lot of the anxiety and a lot of the sort of bad faith attacks on trans kids today are weaponizing that premise. They're like, ah, if we can find out why kids are trans, we can stop them from being trans. If we stop kids from being trans, we can eradicate trans children. That's why a lot of these transphobic rhetorics are actually eugenics. They're explicitly eugenics because they're declaring an entire population of people so undesirable that we should take steps to eradicate them by making their lives impossible. And I do think it's a big problem with how mental health is talked about in general, right? Right. Trans people had to work for decades to get to the place where we are today, where being trans is not considered a mental illness, right? That's one of the big lies peddled by transphobes is that there's some sort of inherent pathology or mental illness attached to transness. And they'll even use this language, gender dysphoria. Right, yeah. Gender dysphoria doesn't describe a mental illness about being trans. In fact, the word dysphoria has nothing to do with trans. It just, dysphoria just means um, basically like an emotional state of distress. Right. Not (laughs) happy, not euphoric, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyone can experience a kind of dysphoria about anything. So the phrase gender dysphoria just means something about gender is giving you a dysphoric state of mind. Right. And so it's actually really easy to say, oh yeah, gender dysphoria. It's called transphobia's impact, right? If you live in a culture where you know you're different, but there's literally no support for you living that kind of lifestyle and people are constantly attacking you, it's extremely dangerous to be visible and every single burden is in your way. Discrimination, the, you know, the impossible costs of transition, you know, loss of family support, bullying, violence, police violence, et cetera. Of course, it's going to take a toll. Of course, you're going to feel a disagreement between who you know yourself to be and the outside world. So we could easily just say dysphoria is evidence of transphobia, right? Right. Because it's not a requirement to transition. You don't have to have. But of course, the, the sort of transphobic side has sort of weaponized these terms and use their vagueness. They sound medical, right? right? In the worst case, they'll just make up a term rapid onset gender dysphoria is a fake non-clinical concept that was peddled by one person whose study was so badly done. It had to, you know, the, the journal that published it had to issue a correction and change the title because it's a study that basically says parents suddenly notice when their children tell them they're trans, that they're trans. And then they're very upset because they didn't know this. And so what? Parents seem to have a problem with transphobia, right? But people, uh, people on the right will use the study as if it proves that there's some sort of mentally ill contagion to being trans. I mean, it's just garbage, right? This is the Schre- like, Schreier? Uh, yeah, Schreier's a big fan of this, of this term and is one of the people peddling it. But I think, like, yeah, kind of all of these pundits who are, right. to be perfectly honest, are just making money. I don't think they care at all about trans people, and but they're making money off peddling this kind of stuff. Yeah, they all love this term. It's also been used in testimony in favor of these bills in a lot of Southern states. 
But I think it's a bigger problem about mental health, right? And I love what you said about what that does to trans folks, right? The suicide question is so, so transphobically handled on all sides, because frankly, I don't think we should have to claim if you take away my health care, I'll die to have civil rights. Like that is the bare minimum. Life is the bare minimum. We also talk about quality of life, saving the life of trans people doesn't mean they have a good quality of life in a country where you'll face education discrimination, employment discrimination. You can easily, you know, lose your housing, lose a job all anytime for being trans, right? Whether, you know, it could just be through at-will employment, even though it's technically now protected under the law being trans and employment, there's no guarantee. And, and who has the time for a lawsuit, right? Of course, that's going to cause mental health strain, right? Of course, that leads to higher rates of suicide, but that's not because people are trans. It's because of transphobia. So it's actually like this really vicious, cruel, ironic kind of statement on the part of those people because there's no way to read it except to say that they relish in the idea of people committing suicide. I mean, I don't think that's even a controversial reading of what these these folks are peddling. But more broadly, right, it's like, why do we think mental illness means there's something wrong with you, right? Mental illness is much more easily read as the distress that comes from living in an oppressive society. And unfortunately, the history of mental health institutions in this country is very dangerous. It's extremely racist. It's been very anti-Black, has locked up untold numbers of African-Americans, has locked up so many women, right, for their hysterias or emotional breakdowns, right? has locked up so many gay and lesbian people for being supposedly perverted or pedophiles or whatever. Deviants, yeah. Deviants, right? And trans people. So many trans people have been institutionalized. It's really scary. Sometimes they're institutionalized by their parents or their community. Sometimes they're institutionalized by court order after being arrested for cross-dressing or sex work or something, right? Sometimes they're institutionalized because something bad happened. I I was just writing this morning about the history of trans conversion therapy. And one of the biggest sources of conversion therapy historically is when a trans person would end up in a psych ward because of an OD or a suicide attempt and and really do want mental health care. And then all of a sudden, all these clinicians show up to say, great, you want to feel better? You have to stop being trans. And it's like, this is a horrific abuse of of institutional care and of psychiatry. And it's really really reprehensible to me to see people like who are transphobic today capitalize on that right try to reassert the idea that there's something that there's something wrong first of all that there's something wrong with being mentally ill these are just categories we use to describe people there's no reason to believe that they're all uh, based in scientific evidence or even if they were that that means there's something wrong with you and two to reinforce the idea that trans people are mentally ill per se which they're not according to our diagnostics but they used to be considered that way right i just throw out the diagnostics are useless right well Are we taking care of people or are we trying to stop them from living? That's the basic question. It's interesting because when you said, how are we looking at mental illness? I think that the issue of children makes it that much harder. And I'm not saying this in an apologetic way, but like the issue of consent, which we obviously have in our society, right? That's an issue, like consent, right? And then- It's funny that you said that because I realized really what the mental health discussion is, is that you're not of right mind, right? So the rates of suicide are are, are then spun as evidence of the person not being in their right mind. And what's interesting is like, okay, my dad's a psychiatrist, so I I have that. He's actually the first person who like explained to me what transgender was. 
Really? And he, yeah, he had patience. And I remember him having a fight with someone over, he obviously wasn't like discussing their details, but like how that's not why he's treating these people. Like they were depressed and maybe it had something to do with that, but he was not intervening to push a, an agenda or to treat their dysphoria. Like, and I, it was another psychiatrist and the other psychiatrist wasn't being like very transphobic. It wasn't like an overt, like they're freaks there, but it was more like the, the concern trolling. And my dad was like way ahead of like me. I remember him just being like, why is that weird? What's, what's weird about that? They're just people who feel this way and like they want to be, yeah, it was cool. I love that. I, my, my mom is a therapist. So with you also like, you know, Congrats on being the child of a mental health professional. Oh, yeah, I know, yeah. Thing. <laughs> that could thing, be a yeah. whole other episode, yeah. Right, yeah, we should do that, yeah. So, but that is interesting because I mm. almost like don't even question when you said what's wrong with mental health, you know, I didn't even question that because I was just like, yeah, obviously there is something to people making decisions and, or in law. And obviously mm. I don't need to say that it's our criminal justice system is fucked and violent. It's an understatement. But that too, and you can't represent yourself. And that is complicated. What's interesting is that sometimes these overly simplified and and harmful labels can actually protect people, right? So like Chelsea Manning used the gender dysphoria, not in a like sinister way, of course, like that was her tool to request not being housed with uh, men, with male people. So it's so it's all like really complicated. And messy and i feel like sometimes as a cis person i'll just be you know straight mm-hmm. no pun intended that it is sometimes hard to talk about things because it's complicated thing can is often like a cop-out and a way to launder certain transphobic ideas and i don't know exactly how to navigate this but this is an area where i think cis people really do have to step back even though that can also be like this culture, you should only write about the culture you're a part of. And I find that sometimes a little bit problematic. Yeah. And then that just means entire cultures, given that we have racism, are just neglected. But yeah, I really stepped in it, by the way. I didn't even look at, well, what is the issue? Like, mm. what is the problem with the just asking questions framing? And yeah, can you can you speak to that? I think it's very easy to just be like, oh, but they are just asking questions. Right. And and like they're progressive. Like they believe in healthcare. They believe that people should have healthcare. Well, they just want to make sure this isn't going too far. Can you address the the dangers that I don't want to have you do the emotional labor of explaining it, but I also want someone who's from that community to yeah, kind well, of, yeah. Well, thanks for for putting it that way too. I mean, you know, it's like this is this is really near and dear to my heart, you know, as a public trans woman of color, you know, I, you know, I have my own suspicions of, of what it is that draws people who aren't trans and aren't in any way experts in any, any field of research, right? I'm a historian. That's not the only kind of person (laughs) who should be allowed to, you know, research on trans people, of course, but particularly, yeah, you know, well-educated, well-spoken journalists uh, and other public figures who suddenly, or not so suddenly, but lately, let's say, have found themselves, you know, on the same side of a lot of the kind of really dramatic, kind of melodramatic internet discourse that frames trans existence as a matter of debate or as something to which we can address questions. And so, you know, one of the things that, you know, I... I have sort of said it on Twitter, for example, is like, you know, you know, I, I, I've seen folks like, 
like Jesse Single or, or Andrew Sullivan or Glenn Greenwald, you know, these folks who are otherwise nominally, you know, they're not rabid right-wing authoritarians. These people are not known for supporting aggressive totalitarian political parties, for example, but they find themselves on the same side of the issue saying, well, every time I ask a question, I'm accused of being in favor of the eradication of transfer. That's just shutting down my free speech. One of the things I'll often say is, hey, you know, I actually work in a scholarly field where we, I'm I'm an editor at a peer-reviewed journal in this field where our literal job is to ask critical, tough questions about what gender is, about trans medicine. That's literally my job. I, yeah. I am primarily a critic of trans medicine as a right. trans person, sure, but as a historian first, not, not as a person first, right? Not because of my identity, I mean to say. Right. And so I've never been accused of wanting to eradicate trans people. I've yeah. never had any problems with my work being received. No, I've never been called transphobic. And it's not just because I'm trans, because my work is rigorous and critical and doesn't ask that question about whether or not trans people deserve to exist. That's not a legitimate question. That's not a, that's not a rational question. Right. Because just apply it to any other group of people, right? We're not going to say, well, is it legitimate that women exist at all? Should we eradicate all women? No, I don't think that's probably a good thing. And unfortunately, if you try to limit people's ability to transition, you are questioning their right to exist because there's such a, you know, important need for healthcare. So, you know, I think the sort of part of the problem, obviously, is that we're stuck in this sort of, you know, post-2016 kind of disinformation sphere online, especially, where trans people have been taken up as a hot topic of debate by really extremist groups, right? right? I'm talking... Proud Boys, QAnon, you know, conspiracy theorists love to talk about trans issues too, right? Aggressive, right, white supremacist groups that see transition as eliminating the reproductive capacity of the white race. Like, that's not what Abigail Schreier says, but that's what people who read Abigail Schreier's book say about her book, which is very disturbing. I don't know why that doesn't upset her more. And so, you know, it's like, I can see how it might feel like, oh, there's just no room for some enlightened centrism here. But to me, that's disingenuous only because there's plenty of room for critical debate around gender. We've been doing it our whole lives. And there's a whole academic field that I'm a part of that asks tough questions. I am primarily a huge critic of of trans medicine, as I said, in part because I understand how it works, (laughs) but also because I don't use that critique to invalidate trans people's right to existence. I don't see that as something that it's not our role to decide whether people have the right to exist or not. And I think what we can always ask instead of, hey, is this person acting in good faith? Is what they're saying true or false? You know, that's subjective. But what we can ask, what we can assess is, what's the outcome of their line of thinking? So that's what's much more interesting to me, right? If I were to ever sit down with like Jesse Single or or any of these public figures, which I'd be happy to do, you know, I, I wouldn't want to debate them. Right. I mean, I have my credentials. I'm a tenured professor. I wrote a book, you know, that has been widely acclaimed. You can read the book if you want to read the book. Right. But but what I would more want to ask is sort of interrogate the line of questioning for, well, what would it lead to and what are its assumptions? Right. Right. Now, if your assumption is that, well, trans kids don't know anything about their gender. Right. They can't possibly understand the medicine that the doctors aren't relying on data and that this is all kind of new and everyone's just confused. Then I could see how you would reach those conclusions. So I would, but the conclusion is based on a false premise, but in any case, the conclusion would lead to the restriction of trans healthcare, the restriction of individual liberty and the restriction of basically 
bodily autonomy, right? So, so if you think it's it's sort of your appointed right to question a community that you're not a part of, whether or not they have the right to direct their own lives, that's just not really something I'm interested in in negotiating, right? And that's a that's actually a moral call, right? right? It's not really a, a true or false call. We can debate the assumptions, and I could bring up lots of data, but but I'm more kind of interested in like what exactly do you think you're accomplishing? Right. What's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? I mean, yeah. what's in it for you? The what's actionable in intelligence. Yeah. Like life or death. What's in it for us is eugenic right. eradication or not. So you can see right. why we're angry. I want to know. I, I'm not sure what it is that, that wakes, you know, some of these folks up in the morning makes them feel so dedicated because if it really hurts their feelings so much to be called out all the time. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper show. To hear the extended interview with Jules, please become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Don't forget to follow Jules on Twitter at GP underscore JLS. Check out her Substack, Sad Brown Girl, and get her book, her excellent book, Histories of the Transgender Child. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Brad Bloom. Thanks and see you next time.